Welcome to the Data Points Podcast. Focused on the importance of data in the 21st century world, we discuss data-centric topics such as fundamentals of data management and use, strategies for building buy-in within organizations, the crucial role that communities play in this important work, and so much more. My name is Meg Burke, and I'm the Community of Practice Manager for the Center for Applied Public Research. In this role, I primarily focus on managing the Economic Mobility Policy Forum, a community of practice for practitioners working on economic mobility initiatives in their cities. And to clarify, a community of practice is a group of people who share a common interest, concern, or question, and they convene on an ongoing basis to discuss and share best practices around a topic. In this case, the Policy Forum is a group of practitioners around the United States who are working on improving economic mobility in their cities. The policy forum is centered around monthly live sessions where we explore a specific aspect of economic mobility and then have a facilitated discussion around the topic. We also create resources to complement the sessions. So today we're taking a look at what the policy forum has accomplished in the past year. Our discussion will take a look at economic mobility during COVID-19 as discussed and researched during our most recent year of policy forum sessions. Today, I'm joined by Amanda Greyer, Michelle Massey, Maylee Thomas, and Kayla Baker, who are finishing up their term with the Center for Applied Public Research as Economic Mobility Policy Fellows. Thank you all for being here today. I really hate that our time uh, working together is coming to an end, but I'm so thankful for all that I've learned from each of you, uh, and I'm really excited to have this time for us to reflect on the work that we've done this year. So as policy fellows, uh, you've spent the past year helping us select topics and prepare for those monthly live sessions. So before we get into this conversation, I'd like to ask each of you to introduce yourself um, and let us know a little bit about uh, some of the work that you're doing. So let's see, I will start maybe with Amanda. Could you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Amanda Greyer. I'm the Chief Innovation Officer at the Mid-America Regional Council We're based in Kansas City, Missouri, but we are a regional organization and we work in nine counties and 119 cities in the bi-state Kansas City metropolitan area. Great, thank you. Kayla, I'm gonna turn to you to introduce yourself next. Sure, I'm I'm Kayla Baker. I'm the DC Initiatives Director at Capital Impact Partners based here in Washington, DC, as well as um, a founder and CEO of a contracting and consulting practice focused on economic mobility issues called Rise Local Ventures. Great. Michelle, can I turn to you to introduce yourself next? Sure thing. Hi, I'm Michelle Massey. I'm the Vice President of Program Operations for the Mariah Group. We're a consulting company. Um, I am based in Washington, D.C. I think later we'll get into a little bit more about our roles. And May Lee, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Hey, y'all. May Lee Thomas the Planning and Development Specialist Senior for the Department of Education and Early Learning for the City of Seattle. Thank you all. It's great to have us all here together to have this conversation. So I want to dig into this conversation. And so my first question is going to be, why is economic mobility so important to you? And why did you choose the Policy Forum as the place to dig into this issue a little bit deeper? And Michelle, I want to ask this question to you first, because you actually moderated one of the policy forums 
very first live session all the way back in fall of 2019. Um, and you've been engaged since then. So I'd love to have you start with that question of, of kind of why you chose the policy forum to have these discussions. Absolutely. Um, so the why is grounded in just who I am. And I feel like my whole life has, has been kind of a case study of economic mobility or the lack thereof. And my entire career path has been related to either addressing racial injustice, social issues, um, econo- which to me includes economic mobility, workforce development issues, all of those things. So when I first um, came to know about the economic mobility um, um, policy uh, fellowship and and Johns Hopkins University and what you all were doing in this space, I was leading a program at the Forum for Youth Investment called Opportunity Nation. And the very nature of that program was how do we call attention to issues in um, kind of civic policy, community development, economic opportunity, education, all of the factors, all the things that impact our lives and move the needle on those things. How do we measure it through um, a data tool that was available online, the Opportunity Index? And of course, using data, using information, using the history of this country, we pretty much knew what would happen your zip code dictated your access to opportunity. And then if you dig a little deeper and you start looking at data points and nuances and policy decisions that impacted companies and and communities and individuals, you see where the disparities exist. And so through that partnership um, and and meeting um, folks from uh, uh, Johns Hopkins at one of our events, you know, it was just happenstance that we were in the right place. We were having similar discussions um, and relationships were built from there. And so I was um, ecstatic when he said, hey, do you want to get involved? <laughs> and Meg, I think it was around the time when you were being hired into the program too. And so I had a chance to meet you very early in the process. Um, and I facilitated a conversation about the Opportunity Index, about data and how to leverage data. And explaining how data, you know, a lot of people make it scarier than it is, Um, but it's information and it's information gathering and it can be very sophisticated. It can be very basic, but it's a way of leveraging the information that you receive and that you're able to get um, and helping people and communities and policymakers make smarter decisions around that. So we had a a conversation with a couple different entities talking about um, how they were using data to make decisions in their communities, how they were looking at economic mobility. Uh, we talked to a representative from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We talked to a representative from Seattle. All of this just made sense to me in my career trajectory because I was finally able to name the things that were impacting my life from the beginning. And you know, growing up in America, it's always made to sound like the stuff that happens to you is all your fault. And that there's a pathology around certain communities and the way that they show up and always, you know, at the lowest rung of X, Y, and Z. But then you're like, no, that that's BS. <laughs> there's more to it. So let's learn about what is presenting itself as barriers. And let's learn about the opportunities to overcome those barriers and then push those barriers and destroy those barriers and work with policymakers who are willing to actually move the needle on how everybody uh, KK access to opportunity. So that is my story in a nutshell. That is why I'm so passionate about this issue. And that's why I was so pleased to go from 
partner and moderator, facilitator into a role where I can then dive deeper and become an actual fellow for the last year. Um, and so that helped me to even just meet other great people in, in regards to my, my fellow fellows um, and just see the network that we're able to build and the conversations that we can have to continue to move um, forward in issues around economic mobility. Great. Thank you so much. I'm curious to know, and Amanda, I think I might start with you with this question, but so what have you seen or what insights have you found based on your participation in the policy forum during the COVID-19 pandemic? So, I mean, I'm, I'm going to punt this one to you because I know that a good bit of your work during the past year has focused on pandemic response. Um, so I'm curious about that. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting when we started the year as the the policy forum, you know, we were, we were August, uh, August 1st, basically, is when we started last year. And it's almost a year ago now. And it feels like the things that we were doing back then, what we were talking about, we kind of knew there was going to be long-term impact from the pandemic on economic mobility in a very real way. And it was going to impact different people at different in different ways and at different levels. And I think one of the very first sessions that we did last year was talking about um, the uh, city budget crunches and related to the pandemic. But in hindsight, like that was so early, we had no idea um, the long ranging impact and wide ranging impact that this was going to have on budgets of all kinds, whether it was city or state or federal or personal budgets. You know, it just the, the job market changed a lot. And I think in a lot of cases, it wasn't even so much that the job market was changing, but there were these existing inequities and these existing problems that were just so exacerbated. And so as far as, you know, reaching in and figuring out what insights we found, I, what has been super valuable to me is not only being part of this class of fellows and learning from Michelle and Maylee and Kayla, like learned a ton over the past year, but just also broadening my understanding personally. And I think the members of the policy forum, broadening the understanding of how far the impacts of perhaps what seems like one small thing or one small policy change, how, how far that impact really can go. So, you know, in the sessions that we had, the one of the later sessions that we had regarding the impact of the pandemic on women's employment, and particularly women of color, like these are things that we folks have been raising for a long, long, long time, right? These were not when you know we talked about what you learned or were you surprised by anything um unfortunately i don't know that i was all that surprised by an awful lot of what we brought forward but actually putting data having a conversation around it i think really helps make it real it really humanizes the problem for a lot of folks and that's what i found one of the most valuable things obviously the pandemic bringing it back to covid-19 the pandemic has been handled in different ways in different parts of the country let alone in different parts of the world and so being able to understand what types of support programs were being offered or what types of policy initiatives were happening in certain parts of the country and what at least short-term impact those were having, I don't think we'll know the long-term impact of a lot of this stuff for an incredibly long time. It'll be fascinating to see how some of these changes that have happened over the past year and a half in response to the pandemic have really impacted, hopefully for the better, um, the economic mobility opportunities for people in different parts of the country. And, you know, I don't think righting wrongs is necessarily a thing that is possible, but making paths easier going forward is certainly something that I think a lot of the pandemic response topics that we've talked about over the past year 
aim to do and are, are still continuing to work on. I'd really like to just chime in on what um, Amanda was saying. I think there was a lot of um, lot that resonated with me there in terms of my insights and my experience over the last year. I think in in particular, the, the thing that stood out was this, the way I was thinking about it was this has been an incredibly transformational experience for me. Just for context in my, in my background as, you know, I'm, I like to describe it as a recovering Wall Street banker who, you know, was trading portfolios for ultra high net worth individuals during the last recession beginning in 2008 through 2012 and really made the decision for um, just what was available to my clients and how they were able to achieve, you know, significant, have, have significant opportunities, especially economically to do all sorts of things during a time where people were losing the shirts off their backs, businesses were, were challenged, um, folks were losing jobs, homes, et cetera, and certainly um, seeing it disproportionately affecting um, Black, uh, Brown, and uh, communities of color. And so through that experience and, you know, tying it together with um, being in a place where I was seeing resources and, and how they were being deployed, um, with but comparing that to my upbringing in Little Rock, Arkansas, in a very working class community where folks were, you know, had a tremendous amount of pride in where they were coming from and had skills and tools, but were still somehow not not getting, you know, the the you know sort of basic needs being met. You know, I transitioned into the nonprofit finance space and also the community development nonprofit space to be specific in an attempt to address these issues and take my skill sets. My insights, um, both so you know, from from private sector, but also from um, being a black black woman, black queer woman in America, to the bringing that to the forefront. But that's sort of the my my history and how I entered this space of economic mobility. I think it's you know the reason I I started by saying this experience has been transformational is because I, that's one lens. I think you know working with Michelle, May Lee, and Amanda has been um, incredible to just get their insight as practitioners, see the lens that they're bringing, the various angles of like how to define, how to, um, what are the factors, what are the different areas of economic mobility has been incredibly helpful to my, the, the practical work that I'm doing on the ground in Washington, D.C. But I think also it's been the, the, the forum itself and the, the, the folks who are doing the work on the ground nationally and, you know, across the country in a variety from, from rural to urban, et cetera. I just, I wanted to echo that. I, I really liked what she said. And I also think it's, it's just worth elevating. That's, that's, that's sort of what's been really valuable and also really critical to the, you know, the work that Johns Hopkins University is doing. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I want to build on that question by uh, getting your thoughts as well, Maylee. So, you know, we've talked a lot in planning calls and had a lot of brainstorming sessions about topics this year, and you are always so full of ideas. So I'm curious, Maylee, if there were, you know, maybe any things or um, any research or topics that surprised you or were unique or kind of came to mind that as, um, things that were surprising during this year of kind of discussing and learning about economic mobility during the pandemic? Most definitely. So one of the things that I've been doing um, is sitting here and taking notes because it created a, a Amanda's response 
to the previous question created a lot of open tabs in my mind. And then I appreciate the follow-up that Caleb provided. There are a couple of things that came to mind when it came to the conversations we're having about the long-term effects of the pandemic. And yes, agreed with Amanda, not just this next year, but the next five to 10, because for children that were born during the pandemic that are anywhere from birth to three are currently having cognitive development with people wearing masks. And so what will be the long-term effects of infants and toddlers that have to learn not only language skills, but also social emotional learning, learning empathy, learning how to express and identify emotions when the majority of the face is covered. And that is a very important thing to take into consideration. Now, one of the things that I am not going to pretend to do is act as if I have any type of medical license to understand what the cognitive effects of those will be, but it is a part of the conversation, especially since we need a greater sense of empathy if we are going to keep in mind um, racial and social justice. That is a question that is not being fully asked. And, and so I, I do hope that that kind of comes to the forefront. Also, the accessibility of information. One of the reasons why I was interested in the forum in the first place is because I have this greater need moving from, so originally I started working in the fashion industry. That's where I built my career, but then ended up moving, working into local government. And in working in local government, understanding the accessibility of information to the general public about what can help and or harm them is truly important. And so in coming into the forum space, I just, I genuinely like doing research. And so understanding where there were gaps in accessibility with their open programs, right? We discussed some of them within, uh, within the forum. There are opportunities for funds in order to educate on economic mobility and some of the barriers as well as some of the pathways. And so what I loved was being able to see the forum members who was in the room, right, from representatives of National League of Cities, having city representatives, as well as having representatives from different academic institutions, all of those different entities come together to be able to build greater conversation. And so what surprised me was that even with us sitting in that room, it took a lot of being able to find a joint framework there were common issues and concerns. I, I remember in November, we talked about the um, the role that HR played in economic mobility. And one of the big things that we had that discussion around was how, when do I go to HR for myself? Are they there to protect the institution? And it did not matter what type of institution, whether it was city, whether it was private entity, whether it was academic, they all pretty much felt the same way that HR is not the place that I go to for for my own considerations of occupational economic mobility. And it's like, well, okay, why not? Where where do we go? What does that look like? When we're talking about the niche cities, we just had um, that form. It surprised me to hear that they have to apply for, if they don't have a grant maker to be able to apply for ARPA funding, then they won't get those necessary things. And so again, it's accessibility to information, whether it's on the individual level when you're dealing with HR, or if it's on a higher level where you're a small city trying to get federal funds in order to be able to support your your residents. 
accessibility to information is so important. And the way that we were able to research and pull information together to say, if nothing else, you can come into this space and get that. That was actually very surprising for me. Um, and a neutral surprise, right? Not a happy surprise, not a sad surprise. It was very neutral in the fact that this is something that the forum provided. Um, one thing that I'm curious about now, though, is how we utilize this time in this space in building that joint framework, knowing that we've seen commonality in some of these issues and concerns around uh, economic mobility. Because what we're seeing is that families are creating neighborhood and creating life where they live. Being able to work remotely lets you do that. And so understanding the economic mobility that happens right within your space, then that goes into going back to the original question about education that we're also having that conversation on. Are the neighborhood schools good enough? And if they're not, what are the resources that are needed in order to be able to give families what they need in whole neighborhoods? But we cannot have that conversation in isolation. There has to be a collective because it's not just up talking about the schools. It's talking about the transportation of schools. It's talking about the infrastructure and the roads to be able to get there safely. Again, it goes back to who's in the room. And so what was a great surprise for me was being in the room with multiple types of organizations and institutions represented and being able to talk about the issues and concerns of the topics of the month in a holistic manner. And um, I'd like to chime in a little bit too on this question. Um, one of the things that was surprising, but in a great way was that um, while it is important that we had a lot of theoretical discussions and talked about these larger, broader issues, we also brought in solutions. Um, and I'm particularly pointing to the session in June that Maylee alluded to when we had a panel from small cities and the state, like um, there was a representative from Maryland as well, but we were talking to people who were working in rural districts, larger counties, border communities, about what did this past year look like, feel like, and how did you react and, and change the way that you uh, were going about doing your business as a government, as a nonprofit, as an entity serving people in the midst of a, a global pandemic that no one was prepared for because policy decisions <laughs> um, uh, destroyed or chipped away at our investments in preparation for a response to global pandemics. So if you want to talk about policy, <laughs> you know, a big part of this is like policy, your budget is a reflection of your policy. Your choice to fund certain things is a reflection of your values and the policies that you choose to elevate or, or destroy. And so you heard cities saying, you know, they were dealing with misinformation, but how are we still saving lives? Because I'm still responsible for people's lives despite their political preference or where they feel in terms of their ideology. Do they believe in vaccines or not? I don't know. That's not my issue, but I know I have to save lives and I have to continue to serve the communities that I'm working with. Um, so we heard about creative ways that people took the um, stimulus funds that were 
designated for the cities and how they were able to promote the PPE loans, how they were able to um, deliver services around food and food insecurity. The response to schools is something we may or may not ever understand or fully grapple with because the way that schools were designed in this country <laughs> makes no sense. So may lead to your point, no, it's inequitable. It's all based on property taxes, which in and of itself is inequitable. Um, but we had cities and we had states and we had people saying, these are the creative things that we did and tried to do and will hopefully continue um, to do. Uh, we had discussions, and this is where I bring in a little bit about my background. Uh, the work that I do is centered in racial equity um, and philanthropy and how we work with governments and cities to infuse a racial equity lens, but specifically a dehumanization lens um, to explain and how the way that dehumanization has been baked into racial trauma in this world, and particularly in this country, has formed the basis of many policies and the way that policies are passed down and impact communities. And so when you take into effect that race and gender have always been, they're not afterthoughts. You know, people, you know, they'll, they'll say things are happenstance or it happened because of certain things. I don't believe that. I believe every time a policy is created, decided um, that there is a nuance of people who are deciding who will benefit and who will not. And largely in this country, that is um, dictated by skin color, ethnic background, and gender identity to being targeted um, in race. And so as we look at the solutions that cities and, and, and some of the grantees from my organization have come up with, they're looking at things like universal basic, basic income, you know, like cut the bull. How are we actually delivering money to people and getting their, you know, people applauded the child checks, as I'm calling them, um, the child uh, tax credit. And I think, you know, as of yesterday, we started to see some of those hit people's bank accounts, but it's actual real solutions like that, that will move us into a place of change. But this is also where you see all the pushback. You see the pushback. Um, not one single member of the Republican Party voted for the relief plan. And so their constituents may be receiving the child checks and grateful for it, but then will they continue to elect the same people that voted against their favor? And so these are these are very real decisions that um, people are going to have to make at the ballot box, but also in their day to day lives as they're looking at how local level policies and decisions have affected their lives. Um, will they continue to buy into rhetoric around socialism, et cetera, and communism, things that literally Americans have no way of how they operate and what they truly understand, but just love to throw around terms? Or are they actually going to look for solutions that change their lives? And are they going to get out of their own way <laughs> because they're going to say, well, that's going to benefit a community I don't like. And though I'm going to vote against the best interest of who I am, because we've seen this happen in the deep south. We've seen this happen in places like West Virginia and others where people will vote for representatives that literally vote against their best interests. But because we're building some rhetoric around culture wars and everything else, that's getting in the way of real policy change and real solutions that are able to happen. So I probably went so far off topic. <laughs> Listen, but it's okay because I'm over here. I'm like, oh, no, I'm sorry. Michelle understood the assignment and showed up accordingly. Let me go ahead and proverbially take off my earrings and just go ahead and get in this bullpen with you, sis. Because, you know, um, I think that is one of the things that I, I personally am grappling with. And looking at, there's an opportunity 
to completely and totally shift the way that we have been operating. And yet the choice to do so is still in hesitancy as there are now conversations across the country about returning to work and what that looks like for select offices, public or private, not taking into account, like I said, the very real thing of how people have built lives within their neighborhoods and how it has elevated, if anything else, because Amanda said earlier, it's like, I'm not surprised. No, not really. It's just that all of those things are coming to the forefront. And so now we're getting all of these different funds. We being local governments across the country are starting to get all of these funds for these special initiatives, right? You're getting you're getting the Joy Floyd death money. You're getting the um, Asian mass murders, invest in the Asian community money. You're getting these, um, how do we support BIPOC restaurants and businesses money? We're getting these things, but not necessarily the policies, right? Michelle said the key word in there, the policies that are changing the infrastructure that would not make, that would make all of this unnecessary in the first place, right? If we were actually looking at the equitable ways in which we were providing funds out into the community through those, like you said, very unfair property taxes. And and then you have what I'm still learning about the state legislature that then tries to set policies on some of the equitable work that they want to see within those spaces. How those conversations happen and how those things take place and the accessibility. I know I'm going to keep saying the same thing. So if you're listening out there, just know that maybe it's a broken record. The accessibility of information to those that are affected by the policies that then would affect their economic mobility, whether it be through education, whether it is through occupational and career development and advancement, or any other form, it goes right back into how are we having these conversations in the way that COVID has highlighted, galvanized the movements forward in inequities, especially racial, and how we're taking all of the funds that the government is putting forward. Because yes, I am that some people that Michelle's talking about, some money hit my account. But you know what it didn't hit? Them childcare fees, because I pay out of pocket because I don't make enough in order for me to, I mean, I make too much in order for me to get support, but I don't necessarily make enough for me to not feel the pain of the amount of money that comes out of my account every week for my baby. If, if I'm feeling it and I'm not near the poverty line, then I can only imagine what that looks like for the families that want their children to have a quality education probably don't have the opportunity to, because once again, going back into what is inside of their neighborhoods, which goes back to the property tax, which goes back to economic mobility, because how are we setting those families, those neighborhoods, those those residents up to have the accessibility to information to know that the city just actually received Several million dollars that could be fully invested into your space, but you don't know that. And so you don't know how to fight for it or to advocate for yourselves with that. And so I appreciate the work that Kayla um, presented in, in the presentation that she did. Was that March? I think it was January. Was it January? It was Q1. It was Q1. It was Q1. Okay. So we're going to go with Q1 of 2021. 
so go back and listen and watch that and look at the data and the stats. And then when you compare that to the, the presentation that Michelle did on the state of Black boys and that work. And Michelle, if you want to talk a little bit about that, Meg is also the one that is facilitating this, but I just... Listen, Michelle just said some things that just really got on my heart. And it's like tying it back to the work that we've done here in this policy forum. Look back at that data and understand when Michelle talks about policy, when Amanda talks about the fact that she is not surprised at looking at these things, when Kayla talks about the general effects, we see that the data, the information is there, that we have the opportunity to change and to turn around the things that have been happening. the quote of going back to normal, that's not the thing that we want to do. And we have the opportunity to not do it. And now we know the things in play. We know the data in play. We know the money in play. We understand what's at stake. So now it's a matter of understanding what are the steps in order to make that happen and how we get that information to those that are most affected that they may be able to advocate for themselves because yes, I agree. That 300 to 30, I think it's 360 at max that hits bank accounts for select families. That's nothing to sneeze at. And there's opportunity for that to continue to grow and increase because that helps to fill the gap. Going back into economic mobility, it helps to fill the gap. I'll be quiet. Um, No, you basically just asked my next question. So thank you so much because I wanted to take this to building on that conversation and into, I'm curious if, um, and Michelle, we can go to you next if you'd like to go. Um, But if I'm curious about the policy shifts or have you seen policy shifts in your work or have you seen plans for change based on this past year, based on economic mobility during COVID um, that you're excited about? Have you, have you kind of seen those shifts? Sure. So alluding to the um, session that I um, uh, presented on, it was looking at the state of boys and young men of color in the U.S. Um, in regards to dehumanization, racial trauma, and hundreds of years of policy that has led up to the point that we are at now. None of this is um, by accident. (laughs) That is my belief. It is by choice. It is by decision of people to decide who will prosper and who will not. It sounds simple because really it is. Um, You know, when, when you look at these passionate debates about how much money is spent on X, Y, and Z, you can look at the flip side and say, well, yeah, look at how much money is being spent on these other things that you choose not to fund. So the money is always there. The money will be there. The United States could end poverty. It could end inequitable education. It could, um, it could actually end so many of these social justice issues where nonprofits would be like unnecessary. The, understand like NGO, non-profit, like this is this is kind of u- unique to the U.S. too, where we create these entities to solve social problems, where if you have other places in the world that actually have social contracts with their citizenry to the point where you don't need nonprofits to fix these types of problems. So I'll just <laughs> leave it at that, you know, look at Canada, <laughs> look at other parts, you know, look at Sweden. Um, it's there, it's real places where things are happening. 
but I'll leave that over here for another conversation. I'll go back to the question that was actually asked of me. Race and racism will always exist. So long as, as we see, we have this racial reckoning or, I, you know, where George Floyd's murder and the fact that we still even have to go to trial for a murder that was caught on video is mind-boggling enough. But you have this year of every corporation throwing up Black Lives Matter. But then I'm like, what are you actually doing in your HR and hiring practices? What are you doing in your corporate cultures? What are you doing to facilitate actual hires of people of color? But yeah, put a pin in that, (laughs) take that. And so then we were like, wow, things might actually like shift. But then you had, you know, drama in November and then even more drama in January where you're just like, okay, well, maybe there isn't appetite for a shift. And then now you have people fighting against critical race theory, which is another thing that people don't understand. But the fact is all they hear is like black. Ah, that's critical race theory. <laughs> like, how dare you? But the, the point is, in my work, I have seen a shift, particularly in philanthropy. Where you have had a lot of organizations, first of all, come to a reckoning about how did we get this wealth? <laughs> how did these philanthropies get the money they have from these families or individuals? Well, because most of it probably came from like slave trade, legal drug dealing, things of that sort, you know, things that were very unscrupulous, but it built up hundreds of millions to billions of dollars worth of endowments and opportunities. So now you're seeing philanthropy shift and, and you're seeing them say, hey, maybe the way we were doing business wasn't quite great. You know, we're putting a lot of pressure on particularly small organizations, medium-sized organizations um, to try to deliver at the you know same level that large think tanks. Maybe that's not the smartest thing. Or, you know, we have these open investments or closed investments, I'm sorry, where they would invite certain entities to apply for grants. But largely, if you were a Black-led organization, you were not invited to the table to get these grants. And so philanthropy is having a reckoning. In the way that they are funding organizations that probably many of us have worked with um, in any public-private private, um, partnerships where philanthropy is also part of that mix in certain places, like certain cities um, get funding from philanthropy to you know, fund school systems or parts of school systems, things like that. And so now you're actually having this traditional entity, which was very lucrative, very hard to get into, um, actually say the way we fund only help to cause more problems or the way that we dictated outcomes never showed us the outcomes we were hoping for. And so thankfully, in my work directly with like philanthropic entities, they're starting to understand that and they're starting to open up uh, more funding. They're starting not to be as stringent with the funding. So they're allowing more organizations to use money for general operating expenses and supports. Whereas before you had to be very, very, very rigid within programming costs and how you were spending that money. They're paying especially close attention to um, Black-led organizations and the way that those organizations have been overlooked and scrutinized at a higher degree than white-led organizations were in the past. And so thank you, philanthropy. They're also starting to diversify their reviewer pools and get more reviewers that look like us and represent organizations. And again, I'm a Black woman too, for those of you on audio. Um, And so, you know, you're starting to diversify reviewer pools and the way that outcomes are measured in certain communities. So thank you, philanthropy. 
But now we got to work on government. <laughs> now we have to work on the systems organizations that are having high touch with boys and young men of color and people of color in general. What is um, the justice system doing? How are prosecutors choosing to bring charges against certain people and not others? And then the level of those charges. How is healthcare listening to Black women who are dying at higher rates in childbirth? Um, how are the school systems, which have just been notoriously inequitable for decades, how are they responding? And so where's the systems change? And so thankfully, we've been able to push. We've got these pilot programs in certain places in the South, like Jackson, Mississippi, and Baton Rouge, and Atlanta, where we're working with um, nonprofit partners in those uh, cities to work with those systems, kind of those county level, city level, and regional systems that have high populations of Black people that they are serving. And we're trying to infuse a more culturally relevant um, framework of how they are talking to clients, how they are engaging with their clients, and how they are looking at outcomes. We're even looking at things like body mass um, index and how that is a very much like that is a white structured ideal body, body weight thing. But you've got all these folks who are not white and who do not fall into that space. So how are you looking at health measurements? How are you actually coming up with measurements that fit the population that you're serving? Um, so that is some of the work that we're doing. Um, like I said, we go from everything from nitty gritty, what's happening on the ground, to, hey, philanthropy, let's talk about these multi-million dollar investments, to then looking at these systems that are in place that serve people. And then overall, what we're trying to do is like change narrative because we didn't get here overnight. So the way that communities can constantly say, well, that's a good idea, but you still hear it where people are like, no one wants to go back to work. These folks are so lazy. The conversation should really be around job quality. Are you providing actual opportunities that people want to work in? Or are you just creating more of the same? And we're going back to, you know, pre-pandemic times where we are cheating uh, workers and, and exploiting their labor. Or are we actually going to look at the way that we set up job quality, job classification, job structures, benefits, salaries, et cetera? And so, you know, we have started these conversations. We're seeing some um, success in these places. But now the goal is to take these pockets of success and blast them to the world so people could see that it's possible and that it's scalable. Because what's happening in Baton Rouge, a lot of people probably don't even know what's happening there. So hey, let's talk about how they're changing and trying to reform their justice system. And if that is a model that works there, I'm sure it could work in other cities as well. Does that answer the question? Because, you know, I can go on. <laughs> yes, that is really, really important context. And I think, you know, critical to the discussion of what are those policy shifts and kind of, you know, what are we thinking? So I guess I'm, I'd like to turn to maybe Kayla and Amanda. And I think the question building on this conversation is really when we're thinking about policy shifts, when we're thinking about kind of change in the future that we're seeing, what are we kind of seeing as maybe the next big topics or things that you're working on or, or even that you think we'll be seeing in the field of economic mobility in the future? So I might jump in real quick on this one, and it, it really builds on some of what Michelle was just saying and things that Maylee and Caleb already said. And that's around, you know, we talk about economic mobility as a as a topic, but we don't talk a lot about how physical mobility impacts economic mobility. 
And so one of the things that you're starting to see, and it was initially in some cases put out as a, as a pandemic response policy in order to make systems safer and more accessible, but zero fare transit is a thing that you're seeing in places that allows for a greater, uh, greater jobs access. You know, so we talk a lot about transportation and highways and personal automobiles and all of that kind of stuff. But the reality is that transportation is incredibly expensive for an individual. It's expensive to own a car. It's expensive to fuel a car. It's expensive to maintain a car. Driving is just really expensive. And so um, in Kansas City and in the state of Missouri, we have a lot of issues with temporary tags, with people not actually registering their vehicles because it's so expensive to own a vehicle and to register it. And so we, we have a lot of there's um, efforts going on to reduce the number of temporary tags that, that you see. And if you drive around, you'll see paper license plates all over the place. And often they're expired by a year or more. And it's, a, it's an ongoing issue and it's a lot about affordability. And so one of the things that our regional transit agency was able to implement during the pandemic, and there's high hopes that it will continue after this, is zero fare transit. How can it meaningfully create higher amounts of jobs access for folks? You know, when you talk about jobs access, especially as it relates to a transit system, there's talk about the rooms that people aren't in and the decisions that are made that impact the people that, uh, but they're made by people who aren't using the system. And so you'll hear a lot about you know jobs being located in a certain place and they're not anywhere near the people that they're trying to recruit for those jobs and they're not anywhere near uh, the transit lines where they say they're served by transit because there's one line that comes once every hour and a half and it doesn't come from anywhere near where the people live and you have to make three transfers to get out there and and they call it transit served and and is that really transit served at that point and so I think this is been a topic for a long time, but I do think that the pandemic raised its um, visibility like it did with so many other things is how can the transportation system be a true transportation system and not just a highway system for personal automobiles? How do we really increase funding for regional transportation options that include transit, that include support for um, ride sharing or ride hailing where it exists, that, that include the whole system view of transportation and not just how do we add a lane to a highway because people are slowing down between 7 and 9 a.m. and 4 and 6 p.m. on weekdays? And I think, slash hope, that that will continue to be a really high priority for, you know, when we talk about local government policy, that's one that really gets at hitting people in the pocketbook, whether they're buying monthly passes or whether employers are offering some kind of transit support to help pay for stuff. You know, I know that's fairly common in larger cities, but you get out into Midwestern cities and it's around, but it's not necessarily common. And those are the cities that it's a lot harder to get around in if you don't have a car. And so that's an immediate cost of living issue that impacts economic mobility in an incredibly real way. But we have such a car culture in the country that we don't talk about it a lot. So how can those types of policy changes impact the people that are really, to Michelle's point and others, like that are really impacting the people that are touching the system and using it and rely on it in an incredibly real way every single day to get stuff done that they need to get done, whether it's go to work or get access to education, access to healthcare, all of the things that they need to do as a whole person and not just as an employee or not just as a student or not, you know, not, not the silos that they've been put in by the opportunities that they have for support. And, and that's it's really great to hear the this aspect of the physical, Amanda, because I was thinking sort of the same thing on, you know, in in my work at Capital Impact Partners, it's been, I mean, the bulk of my portfolio, all of my 
all of the programs in my portfolio are focused around small business owners of color. Owners of color is what I would say. Small business being one area and the second area being housing, being real estate developers of color, which is essentially real estate owners. Um, and so as we've, as I think back to the work that um, reflected on just sort of what I've been seeing with the real estate developers of color that I'm working with, it's been that that's been a topic of discussion. It's a little bit different in the DC metro area because it's more densely populated, but housing affordability is by far one of the biggest challenges in this city and is increasingly becoming a, a challenge along the east, you know, the east, the east coast, and even in is making its way actually across the country to places like Nashville, to my even my hometown of Little Rock, Arkansas, Memphis are experiencing sort of a, a real sort of housing crisis that no one's talking about. And the reason that I'm, I'm elevating that in terms of the physical is its relevance to people's ability to commute um, in a place like Washington, D.C., where, um, you know, a, it's it's no longer affordable for anybody to live in Washington, D.C. Um, folks who may have jobs um, doing, you know, in the city, working for the district, working for, you know, they may have other jobs where they're doing, um, you know, they're they're supporting people by, you know, preparing food for them and things of that nature. It is like ridiculous. I mean, the average price for um, of rent in, in a studio in downtown is probably $2,500 to $3,000. This is a studio. So, you know, a four-person family, I, it, it's, it's crazy. And so one of the things that we've been doing, just in thinking about the solutions aspects of what you were saying, Meg, your question is having real estate developers of color is part of the solution. It's part of the systems change. These are folks who are black, who are brown, who are from these communities or communities similar to that. And more importantly, they have the skill sets. They 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 have developed um, you know the expertise within real estate development to be able to execute deals, um, build a pipeline, and ultimately build something with you know leveraging. As I said early on, my own experiences, leveraging their own experiences and recognizing, hey, I, I've got an aunt, I've got my mom or my dad or whomever in this community, or I grew up in this community and I know what it needs to look like. And I also know how to galvanize and work with folks in the community to build something that 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 is actually relevant and, and needed. It also, you know, because it's been focused, this this work um, with the emerging real estate developers of color has been focused on housing and housing affordability. It's also thinking thinking through, like, what does that what does that even really mean? And how do we allow them the space to build that build whatever it is that is needed? And also thinking about what I wanted to say, actually, is thinking through you know, how do you create space for these folks when there's also a very hot market of for-profit developers in, in this area? And I think that that is ultimately, you know, it's, it's this sort of circular conversation when we think of the history, the economic history of this country is often anchored in racism, but also the other aspect of this is that capitalism is sort of at, at play and thinking through, well, like, how do we continue to maintain our moral compass and recognize that privation and there are some basic necessities that everyone has a right to and people should not have to worry about where they're living 
or or have a difference, such a significant difference in lifestyle from where they're able to work, where their kids are able to go to school, what kind of air they're able to breathe on the basis of a zip code. We all need to have, you know, people need to have dignity in where they are and it, regardless of where they are in this country and frankly, the world. And so I think that's been a solution. Um, it's been, you know, system change. It's it's from the ground up. I think we've also had, just touching on Michelle's point, um, you know, there's been a, an increasing openness from our funders to really, um, I think, get, you know, be be willing to hear more about sort of what the journey is to actually doing this work. Um, historically, funders and, and the philanthropy community has been very invested in outcomes and impact metrics. Um, but the challenge is we're talking about a 400 year problem if we're talking about black Americans. Um, and that includes my, my own family. I am the descendant of uh, enslaved people, uh, unfortunately. But I think we have to think through that. We have to recognize that. We have to recognize that the foundation of building and real estate and infrastructure was on the backs of Black people um, who were building, literally building and not being able to be, participate in the capital markets. And what, and so the, the secondary, the secondary part that I would say to that is that the access to capital for small business owners, for real estate developers, um, owners, people who are owning these building spaces has been this access to affordable capital. It's been, and, and that's something that we've been working on in my work and thinking through and creating specific capital solutions for these, in this case, these emerging developers of color and for some of the small business owners that we're supporting and technical assistance and all of that. So I, I just wanted to echo that, elevate that. And I just, the, the last thing that I want to say outside of this idea of systems change and it it's certainly necessary at this point in time and we have the op, you know the opportunity to really um sort of seize the moment but is just thinking about where may lee started uh, at the beginning of this conversation around um collective frameworks and like how do we bring it all together i think that's where the solution is um i think we've we're on to something with the conversations that we've been having today um all year long and 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 with a variety of Folks who are who are doing the work, they like it's it's not as though we don't we don't see these are folks doing the work. They have the answers. They see the problems, and so I think that is we have to do something differently if we're talking about solving for a multi-century issue. Thank you so much. I, I think that we have successfully covered almost every single topic we talked about this year during this conversation. So, you know, kudos to all of you for making those connections um, so easy for this conversation. Thank you so much. I, I want to say a huge thank you as we wrap up, a huge thank you to the four of you um, who have served as our 2020-2021 cohort of policy fellows. So again, we were joined by Kayla Baker, Amanda Grauer, uh, Michelle Massey, and Maylee Thomas. I have 
just so greatly enjoyed working with you all, learning from you. I think all of our calls probably could have lasted about four hours given our conversations. We just, you know, had so much to discuss and and make these linkages, I think, during all of our planning calls and live sessions. So I want to say a huge thank you to you all for your hard work, your great ideas, and your commitment to improving economic mobility in the United States and in your cities. So thank you to everyone for joining us today. If you would like to learn more about the Policy Forum, you can find us at Applied Research search.jhu.edu. Membership is free for practitioners who are working on economic mobility, so you can visit the website to join the policy forum and receive access to exclusive resources um, and an invitation to join our next live session. So if you would like to learn more about our parent organization, the Centers for Civic Impact at Johns Hopkins University, you can visit us at civicimpact.jhu.edu.